Take your Bibles, stand with me, turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 39. We'll be reading through to verse 46. Hear the word of the living God. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The word of the living God. And now, beloved, turn with me to our sermon text which, as you know, for a number of weeks has consisted of one word after the general description, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 is self-control. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. O Lord, we live in a world that seems to us to be utterly out of control. From a moral and ethical standpoint, from a societal standpoint, Lord, everywhere we look and under every nook and cranny, oh Lord, we find chaos and rebellion against You. We find the indulging of the flesh. And rarely do we see in the world around us any self-control. But Lord, as we come before Your Word this morning, we cannot just throw stones at the world. Lord, we pray that You would deeply move and convict us of our own lack of self-control. That we would be persuaded, O Lord, that even the most disciplined, organized, self-controlled person is in desperate need of your Spirit's grace. That more and more fruit might be born in the Christian life. And so we humble ourselves again before you. And we pray for this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit which is self-control, that you would teach us what it is, that you would teach us to walk according to it in our union with Jesus Christ, that you would point us constantly to the Savior and to His perfect righteousness, 
which contains his perfect self-control. O Lord, lift up our hearts to heaven now as your word is preached. Carefully guard the lips of the one who speaks, the ears and hearts of those who hear, that all together we might with one heart worship and praise you through the preaching of your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated. Now, whether every detail of this opening illustration is accurate or not, whether there be certain parts of it that belong more to Reformed folklore than to actual history, I'm going to throw it out there anyways. There was the Metropolitan Tabernacle, that great church edifice where Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, would preach morning and evening. And that great preacher of the gospel was known on uh, the across the pond uh, side of things. And word got out to D.L. Moody. Uh, you will at least recognize the last name, the Moody Bible Institute, Moody Press, named for uh, the great evangelist of the last century. And Moody, upon uh, hearing the relative fame of Spurgeon as preaching decided that he would make the trip across the pond and he would go and would hear the great prince of preachers. And so as the story goes, Moody shows up to the evening worship service of the Metropolitan Tabernacle and indeed Spurgeon was uh, not to disappoint. He was in the pulpit and Moody recalled later that he had rarely been moved uh, as he was moved that night by the preaching of the word. But The purpose of our illustration is nothing quite so pious. It's actually what happens after the worship service that concerns us this morning. Those of you that know the story are the ones that already have a smile on your face. Moody made his way back into sort of the annals of the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Spurgeon kept an office. And Spurgeon's habit was uh, always to retire to the office after the evening worship service. And he did that night as well. So Moody made his way back to the office, and as he approached the office, the door was open just a crack, and he uh, observed coming through that little crack in the door a plume of what could only be described as a horrifying smoke. And as Moody gained courage to open the door all the way and to walk into the room and to be engulfed within uh, the cloud... He looked and he was shocked to find Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, smoking a pipe within the walls of the church. And Moody had a trademark response to this. He rather impulsively shouted out, My dear Mr. Spurgeon! How can you call yourself a minister of the gospel and smoke? To which, in Spurgeon's inimitable way, he responded immediately. My dear Mr. Moody, how can you call yourself a minister of the gospel and be so fat? (laughs) Well, I don't believe in telling jokes from the pulpit, and I would not have told that one except for the point that it makes. 
We're dealing now with this last aspect of the one fruit of the Spirit. And we're dealing, of course, with self-control. The very interesting thing about the illustration is that both of these gospel ministers were in turn accusing each other of a lack of self-control. Now, Moody may have been doing it more from uh, his sort of background, which would look at things like having a drink or engaging in a smoke as being fundamentally sinful. And so maybe we would say, well, he was going beyond even an accusation about self-control. That might be true. But Spurgeon, in his response, Moody was uh, not a slight man, we'll say, in his response was indicating the perceived hypocrisy Spurgeon, of course, thinking to himself, you cannot make a case that I cannot enjoy a pipe after the Sunday evening worship service. And so looking at Moody and Moody's indictment of him on the basis of his smoking of the pipe turned quickly to highlight a perceived lack of self-control in the good preacher himself, namely that he had had a few too many bowls of ice cream, apparently, in the States. Well, whatever we make of that illustration, it's not really the point to try to take sides, whether you're a, a Moody man or a Spurgeon man. You should be a Spurgeon man, by the way. Um, <laughs> we're here to ask the question, what is self-control? Now, last week we talked about it from the perspective uh, of gentleness, and we saw that gentleness and the rest of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit don't have so much to do with a an assessment of your natural personality and abilities. So in other words, you're not going to be able to take a spiritual gifts test or a spiritual fruit test and be able to figure out where you're weak, where you're strong, and that's just going to solve everything for you. No, uh, with regard to self-control, it would be very easy for those of us, and I'm using the proverbial us here, I'm not included in this naturally, right? Those of us who are more disciplined naturally, more structured in our lives, more organized, who don't have that great difficulty that some of us, and now I am including myself in this, that some of us have with regard to issues of discipline, of bringing things under control. We don't maybe have that issue, some of us naturally, but we are not to conclude that as such, we somehow have cultivated the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. It's the same thing that we saw with gentleness. Some of us are much more timid and passive and can't even imagine a world where we would say uh, a really brash and, and harsh word to somebody else. Maybe if no other reason for the fear of man. But then there are others who are much more brash by nature. And when we assess the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, we need to look at ourselves naturally and we need to ask where has the Lord brought me from my natural tendencies by grace and the work of His Spirit in sanctification? And that's what we need to ask when we talk about self-control. Where has the Lord brought me, irrespective of the fact uh, of whether or not I'm a super-organized person, super-disciplined person by nature or not, where has the Lord taken me from and where is He bringing me to? And of course, the answer to that question ultimately is always that he is taking us in every single one of these aspects of the fruit into greater Christ conformity. Children, that means being made more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ every day. 
We call that progressive sanctification. Being made more like Jesus day by day by day by day. It's a marathon as we've seen, not a sprint. Well, we're going to do three things and very similar to what we've been doing throughout the entire series so far. We want to ask the very simple question, although it's not so simple to answer, what is self-control? Secondly, we want to ask the question further, what is the key to self-control? Or we might even say this, how does Christ demonstrate to us true, biblical, God-glorifying self-control? And then finally, we want to make specific application, and we'll spend a good amount of time doing that. So perhaps different from other sermons so far in the series, we're going to spend relatively little time, although it'll still be a decent chunk of time, on these first two points, and we're then going to make a lot of application uh, with the Lord's help in our third point. But we need to begin with that question, what is self-control? Jerry Bridges, a name uh, with which you are likely familiar, wrote this. He said, self-control is not, and we found ourselves in these waters trying to understand the aspects of the fruit by first what they are not. He wrote, self-control is not control by oneself through one's own willpower. Okay, that's our natural bent, right? Some of us have more of that and others of us much less of that. That's not what it is. Well, what is it? He continues, but rather control of oneself through, and this is the absolute key, through the power of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament, he writes, refers to self-control as the mastery of the self and the fashioning of one's life in the way in which God desires. It is the restraint of one's emotions, the restraint of our impulses, the restraint of our desires in accordance with the Word of God, and Bridges concludes, and for his children, you know what I'm going to say, glory. So according to the Word, for his glory, bringing into captivity every thought emotion, affection, desire, etc. Now you can see that self-control is a high and lofty thing. And you can see from the very beginning that if we were left to keep but this one thing, if this was the only aspect of the Christian life, and I know we say this all the time, we would be justly condemned for an eternity in hell for our lack of self-control. Now, this is going to become not uh, the judgment and hellfire for us. This is going to become actually our great comfort when we get to Jesus Christ and we look at his obedience and self-control. But perhaps there's a question that sort of jingles in your mind when we talk about these different aspects of the fruit of the Spirit because, you know, some people will say things like this. You know, I know unbelievers that are much more godly than the people I know in the church. You've likely heard that. You may have even said that. And if you haven't said it at some point or another, you might have been tempted in your thoughts about it. But is that an accurate statement? Can we rightly say that there could be out there somewhere an unregenerate, unbelieving person that does not have the spirit within them 
that could somehow be more godly, and in this case, more self-controlled than a believer. Now, again, beloved, depends on how you define the term. If you leave the term in the realm of common grace and you say that's the ability to just simply discipline yourself, to keep your schedule better, to avoid certain things, then of course there are unbelievers that look, externally at least, much more self-controlled than many believers. And yet, we are not defining self-control in that man-centered way. It requires a standard, namely the Word of God. It requires enablement, namely by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it it requires a proper goal, which is the glory of our God. None of those three things the unbeliever has, and therefore we can never rightly say that that unbeliever who has not the Spirit, nor the desire to obey or glorify God, that unbeliever can never be more self-controlled in this sense than a believer. Godliness, of course, is understood and has to be understood through that lens of glorifying and enjoying God as defined by the standard of His Word. And so, for an example, we we might think about the Olympics that roll around uh, every four years, and we might think about those Olympic athletes. They are supremely physically disciplined. You're going to comb the earth in vain to find more disciplined people outwardly with regard to their bodies. And yet, what do you frequently hear about the conduct of these exact same super externally disciplined people in the Olympic village in which they stay during the Olympic Games? It is absolute, sordid, debauched, wicked, immoral encounter. And so you see the problem. On the one hand, you have people who have so disciplined their bodies that they can perform incredible physical feats. But these very same people with their disregard for the word and will of God and for the glory of God and the absence of the spirit of God in their lives engage at the one and the same time in a a patently non-self-controlled kind of a way. But this is the life of a sinner in their sin. Yes, they can discipline things outwardly, but that's it. They cannot discipline themselves internally to the glory of God. Why? Because there's no self-control apart from the Spirit, which is why we call it the fruit of the Spirit. Well, again, what is self-control not? Bridges helped us, not just willpower, but further, it is also not a soft core form of legalism. You know, we're, we're, we're going to discipline ourselves, and that's going to be kind of the cardinal virtue in the Christian life. If I can just discipline myself enough so that outwardly I appear to have everything together, or even worse, I am going to take the standard and I am going to use my will in order to so organize my life that I avoid all sin and even think that I might possibly achieve some kind of perfection. Well, again, anything that we would put into the equation of how we have right standing with God 
in addition to the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, it has to be taken out of that equation immediately or you have heresy. And so this is not Christ's work plus my self-control equals standing with God. So we have to avoid this kind of soft core legalism. It is being purchased by the precious blood of Christ such that I am not my own, but belong to Him. Self-control then by the Spirit is one mechanism that we have to glorify God and to be further conformed to the image of Christ. One author puts it this way. He says, self-control is the discipline of affection and appetite. So we're being called to discipline our affections and our appetites or desires. The Christian, he goes on to say, governs himself by submission to the will of God and his word. If we're bearing fruit, we will be disciplined in our actions, in our attitudes, in our affections, and in our appetites. And so the call here is, as we mentioned at the outset, to bring every affection and appetite or desire captive unto the obedience of Christ Jesus. Another author says self-control is the consistent, persistent, spirit-led outworking of faithfulness, connecting two dots within the one fruit of the Spirit. It is this consistent and persistent, spirit-led outworking of faithfulness, the faithful life now disciplined and every thought brought captive to obedience to Christ Jesus. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, But exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And so as we round out our survey and we have sought to answer the question of what is self-control, of course, you can't leave it here. Our tendency is always to look at the people around us, and it's not wrong to do that as long as we have the log out of our own eye. But what's the log for you and for me? When we assess these things, when we talk about self-control as being utterly dependent on the Spirit, not merely an external thing, but something that governs the appetites, the desires, the affections, the will as it does, where am I weak? What attitudes and affections and appetites and desires show in my life, even if it's only at the level of my thoughts, that I am lacking in this spirit's self-control? Well, what then is the key to self-control? Or we might say, how does Christ factor in to the self-control of the believer? What's the Christ-centered nature of self-control? Well, imagine just for a moment, we've done this with other aspects of the Christian life, but imagine just for a moment, two things. One, being utterly devoid of self-control. In other words, your life, no self-control. Maybe an easier way to say that is, your life now has no guards and no filters. You are utterly exposed. Every thought you think, it just goes out there. Every thought which would lead to an action leads to an action. 
Okay, you're terrified. You should be. If you have any right self-assessment of your own heart, you've got to be terrified at such a thought. Praise be to God, that's not going to be the case. But a second thing. Imagine now being granted perfect self-control. So not the unleashing, but now the perfect bridling of affection and will and desire. What would that look like? And some of you will say, well, I've seen glimpses of it, if not in myself, in other believers. But the perfection of it? No idea what that would look like until you ask the question, what did it look like in Christ Jesus? And then you have an answer that's worth giving. Now, as we think about our Savior's life, we read in the Scriptures that He was tempted in every way and yet without sin. I mean, how much of of this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit would be required for our Savior in the flesh to resist the devil while he's starving? Or how much, as we read in Gethsemane, Luke 22, how much self-control would be required to look into the cup of wrath, that cup of wrath which he knew was his cup to drink down to the last drop, namely the very wrath of God that he was going to suffer on the cross. Why is he sweating drops of blood? Why is he in the utter anguish of his soul? It's because he knows what's in the cup. Let this cup pass Oh, my Father, he cries out in humble petition. Why? Because he knows that cup contains the wrath of God that will be poured out upon sin and sinners apart from a mediator. And there the mediator sees that, oh, yes, my Father has appointed this for me. And it is only the Son of God who has taken on flesh who can take and drink this cup of wrath. What happens if you try to drink that cup of wrath? What happens if I try to drink that cup of wrath? Oh, perish the thought. We would be utterly consumed in the wrath of God. But Jesus Christ, with the Spirit anointing Him beyond measure, denies himself any desire that does not conform to your will, O Father, your will be done. And he's upheld in this grace of self-control, this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, not only while resisting the devil, while he is starving, not only while he's being spat upon on the way to the cross, not only as he's being crowned with thorns and mocked and ill-treated in so many different ways, he opened not his mouth when he was punched and beaten and spat on and mocked by those who were made through him and for him. It's almost impossible to imagine You know, how much self-control does it take you not to respond in anger when you are wronged? And again, I'm not just talking about that outburst or the words coming out of your mouth. I'm talking about your heart's tempest when you are wronged. And now do you see why it's so necessary to look at the Savior? What good is it for us to understand self-control in some more limited way? 
But we have to see it in terms of the very Son of God who took on our flesh, who was tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin, the self-control required for Him to endure the cross and to despise the shame. His love for His Father and for all of the chosen of God from before the foundation of the world drove His self-control. The Holy Spirit empowered that self-control. We are bought with His blood, with the design that we might be conformed to His image. Part of which involves this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. And the Lord has not been silent about this. God told us the purpose, among other things, other facets of that purpose, for redeeming a people for himself. Why did God do that? That, Titus 2, we would be a people purified for his possession who are zealous for good works. Now let's do a little bit of spiritual math here. The purpose for which we have been made and remade in Christ is that we would have a zeal, a passion, a drive for a life that glorifies God. Now, beloved, connecting the dots in the equation now, do you have this zeal, this passion for self-control according to the Word and will of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, with the purpose of glorifying God, Do you have a growing zeal for the cultivation of this aspect of spiritual fruit? Do you take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Do you take seriously the business of keeping the heart as Solomon writes to his son in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, keep the heart for out of it flow all all of the issues of life? And are you seeking first the kingdom and its righteousness, or are you seeking your own kingdom, your own pleasures, your own passions, your own desires, your own will? Well, you might think we've already crossed into the territory of number three, which is specific application, and you would be right about that. Uh, That was something, I believe, of a transition. And so how do we specifically apply these things that we're learning about what self-control is and the Christ-centered nature of it, which becomes the key to our own self-control. Well, we need to acknowledge that self-control is in some respects opposite of what we might call self-indulgence. Self-control, the opposite of self-indulgence. So we take the example of anger. We've already been getting at this a little bit, but what do you do? How do you respond? What do you experience in your heart when you are provoked to anger? We were talking about this in our family worship in James chapter 1. You know, you're talking about, on the one hand, the trials that befall all of us, God's purposes in those trials, but then also the temptations that come to us. And one thing that is so easy to say is when provoked, 
we utter something like this. You made me angry. Now, if you have never thought that way, uh, please come talk to me and educate me afterwards. I, I, need, I need to know your secret there. Um, these things are so natural to us and to the remnant of sin within us as to be inescapable. And so you think about that. that there is this response when people provoke us to anger. You made me angry, but... First, James 1 tells us that actually your anger is a direct result of your desire, your sinful desire, which you indulge and that which entices you via temptation and you give in and the result is sin. And of course, James gives us that sort of conception to birth metaphor there that there's the conception of sin and our desires and then there's the giving birth to that sin. And then when sin grows up and turns real ugly, it looks like death. No, it's not that person made me angry. There's no doubt that we do things that legitimately provoke one another. But the point here is that we need to be careful because we are required by God's Word to bring our emotions, our responses into captivity to Christ's obedience and not to indulge the flesh. Anger is a choice. Self-control by the Spirit helps us to remain calm. Now, that doesn't mean that when you're provoked that you don't confront. That's not at all the point. But the point is how do you react How do you respond? What do you give real estate to in your heart with regard to your response? Proverbs 15, 28 says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Children, what about you? What about when you don't get what you want? Which, in your estimation, is a good bit of your life. You know, being denied the thing that I want, the thing I'd like to do. Uh, that word, as we've seen in previous studies, no. When you're told no, that will sort of educate you as to where you're at with regard to the bearing of this fruit. When you're told no, when you don't get what you want, children, do you grumble? Are you discontent? Perhaps you're very difficult to satisfy When you're told no, then you should have an immediate warning sign go off in your head. I need to exercise self-control by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And the adults realize that we're not just talking to the children. And so we need to assess, do some godly assessment. What what are our habits? What, What are, for instance, our internet habits? Um... I probably wrote that phrase, internet habits, long enough ago to have been now absorbed within the sea of the social media habits. Uh, But what are our, we might say, screen habits, our entertainment habits? We're not trying to put out some sort of legalism here. We're not trying to, you know, legislate what movies you watch as long as they're not inherently sinful, right? We're talking about anything here 
not sinful in and of itself. Obviously, that's forbidden, just period. But if a thing is not forbidden, still, what is my habit and my use of that thing? It is supremely important. For instance, money. Money is no bad thing. Money itself is not the root of all kinds of evil, is it? But rather the love of that money, the lack of self-control with regard to money will lead to utter ruin. And yet we would not be right to conclude, therefore, that money ruined the man. No, his sinful heart and lack of self-control, among other things, is what ruined the man. We have to ask, with these things that are permissible, and maybe here you're thinking of Mr. Moody's ice cream or Mr. Spurgeon's pipe, but with things permissible, we still have to ask the question, do we so prioritize these things that we neglect the pursuit of holiness? Do we raise up the use of these good gifts of God to the level that they become idolatrous? Hence the need for self-control, things that are not sinful in and of themselves, but they become sin as you indulge in them, especially to the neglect of the pursuit of holiness. We think of a passage like 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Sinclair Ferguson has a very, very helpful template for us in his book on maturity. Uh, When he writes this, he gives us a series of questions, and I've added a fifth question uh, to his list, but here are his four things. In assessing these good things that can so easily become life-dominating things, idolatrous things, things that will now, even though given to glorify God, will do anything but if we abuse them. Number one, Does this help my Christian life? Does this help me in my Christian life? Secondly, does this thing have the tendency to enslave me so that I begin to need it and therefore have developed a voluntary enslavement or what some call addiction to the thing? I can't live without it. I've got to have it. Thirdly, does this edify me? Does it build me up into a mature Christian? And fourthly, one that we almost never think about, does this help my neighbor? How does this thing relate to my neighbor, the use of this thing relate to my neighbor? Does it build up my neighbor? And then the fifth one, and I think is the broadest possible one, ultimately, does my use of this thing, glorify God, and can I be thankful for it? Now again, you cannot legitimately be thankful for that which is sinful, right? Think about how Paul sort of works this out in Ephesians chapter 5. He lists a bunch of sordid stuff in the beginning of chapter 5 after he's really said, you know, you're to be imitators of God. Uh, the impossible imperative, but that's followed by a litany of especially sexual immorality types of sins. And he says, in essence, 
that we need to put away sexual immorality. But instead of that, he says, be thankful. I was talking to one of you after a worship service several weeks back about how this hit me for the first time. I had never seen it. I'd probably, I don't know, read Ephesians 5 and even heard sermons on Ephesians 5 and, and had never gotten this until I, I read it in a practical commentary. It was a devotional commentary of all things on the book of Ephesians. And the connection that was made was this. How easy is it for you to view pornography, let's say, or to indulge your not sinful in and of itself habit that has become for you life-dominating? How easy is it for you to thank the Lord and engage in that thing at the same time? And that's what Paul is saying. Instead of immorality, be thankful. Why? What's the relationship? Because while you're praising God, while you're thanking God for His good gifts, it is well nigh impossible for you to then indulge the flesh while you are thanking the Lord. Now I know for some of you are thinking, well, if I follow that out to its logical conclusion, then when I'm tempted with these things, I'm literally just going to be thanking God all day long some days. Praise be to the Lord. Have at it. That's exactly what the Lord would call you to. Fill your mind with that which is praiseworthy, that for which you can thank the Lord. And if you cannot thank the Lord for that which you are currently engaging in, then it has to go. It's not enough for it just to be permissible. But if you cannot give thanks to the Lord, you cannot glorify the Lord in the use of that thing. You can't use it. And this, of course, is going to result in a wide variety of Christian liberties that we enjoy or don't. All things permissible, not all things profitable. And, of course, these criteria are some of the things that we can use to assess it. We take our sinful habits, those things where we say yes to the things of the flesh. We've given the example already of pornography and other sexually sinful pursuits, but there are much more subtle things than that. We've had a whole Catechism Hour series on the grace of contentment and how a lack of contentment just foments within us as this cancer that spreads. You see, we can avoid these big sins, these obvious sins, and have some measure of self-control in those things while internally we are utterly discontent with our lives where we are grumbling at every opportunity. We would shake the fist at God if we didn't think that would be bad form for a Christian. But all the while, we're failing to control the way that we think even about God Himself. You know, we spend time, as it were, daydreaming in our jobs for a better job, with our boss around for a better boss. We perhaps daydream in our weak moments about a better marriage, and dare we even utter it, a better spouse. But all of these things begin very small, with the design, as John Owen reminds us very helpfully, to grow up into the worst sin beast that you can possibly 
imagine. And what we have to do in the midst of our struggles is ask this, is what I'm doing, that which I'm engaged in, the very thing that I am demonstrating a lack of self-control in, is that thing consistent with the reason for which Christ came to die? We have to think Christ-centeredly about this, beloved. But we, we can't just say, I need to do better. I, I need to lasso that thought or I need to discipline that habit. No, we have to think of it in terms of the gospel. Christ has died. Christ has given himself to pay for my sins and to purify me, to make me zealous for good works. Am I zealous to see this lack of self-control put to death? Can I say, while I'm engaged in this lack of self-control, I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and will therefore glorify God in my body. Now we need a word of warning and perhaps encouragement here. Beloved, don't believe with regard to your lack of self-control that you are so far down the road of sin that it's just hopeless to attempt to exercise any measure of self-control. You know, you might reason in your heart, I am what I am, and I am where I am. And I got there through the setting aside of the grace of God and the discipline of self-control. So what in the world am I going to do now? I am stuck in this. I'm so far gone, there's no bringing me back. You don't understand the tentacles, the hooks that sin and temptation have in my life. Fair enough. I might not, but the Lord does. There might not be a single believer that can understand the particulars of the depth of your struggle and your failure, but the Lord Jesus Christ is a sympathetic high priest who has been tempted in every way and yet without sin. He is the one who will bear you up. He is the one through His gracious Spirit who will teach self-control to your heart. He is the one through whom you have been granted repentance, the turning from sin back unto God. He shed His blood, beloved, so that your sanctification is guaranteed. It must happen. Or to put it another way, in Paul's language, he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ. He will mature you. He will make you more like Jesus Christ. You may not be able to see how that is possible. Because with man all things are not possible, but with God all things are possible. And so, in light of this great grace, in light of this fantastic promise, beloved, repent, turn from your specific sins, confess them to God. Don't be general. Oh Lord, I have a self-control problem. No, be specific. I have laid down in the cesspool of pornography and bring that to the Lord. It is not some innocuous general failure to exercise self-control. No, it is very specific. It is before the face of God. Lord, it is before your face that I do these things. 
And so please, by Your grace, by Your grace, let me rest in the finished work of Christ. And I know how hard and imperative that is. When you hear something as attractive as rest in the finished work of Christ, I know the rebuttal. It's impossible to rest in the finished work of Christ when I'm not finished with my wickedness. And yes, our wickedness is an impediment to resting in the finished work of Christ. But beloved, whether we rest or not, His work is finished. It is accomplished. He screamed it from the cross. It is finished. And so, beloved, He takes His own and He sanctifies them by His Spirit. We look to Him and to His perfect obedience. He died for all of our sins, not just for the ones that are easier for us to put to death or to gain the mastery over. You know, we think that way sometimes, even if we don't want to admit it. Yeah, I can well understand how Christ would die for this or that sin because I've put it to death at one point or the other by the power of the Spirit. But I don't have so much success with this or that sin And therefore, a degree of difficulty in my mind becomes a thing. Much more difficult to be forgiven those sins. Beloved, that is not a gospel way to think about the forgiveness of sins. Every sin. Past, present, future. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And pray this way. This is... From a little book, it's a collection of Puritan prayers. No, not the Valley of Vision. Uh, Piercing Heaven. Uh, Robert Parker prayed this way, and this is a good way for us to learn to pray as well. O Lord, it is so hard for us to fight against ourselves. It is very difficult to overcome an enemy that lies so close and hidden within us as our flesh does. And unless you arm me with divine power, I am in great danger of yielding to this treacherous foe. Help me die to myself daily. I beg you, do not let me be eternally separated by the attractions of the flesh from the life that is in Christ my Savior. Preserve me this day in your fear and favor. And in the end, bring me to your everlasting kingdom, through Jesus Christ. Amen. And as we pray these things, beloved, it was suggested in our look at Ephesians 5 and the relationship between temptation and thankfulness, but now we make it explicit. Beloved, worship, worship is a powerful, tonic, for affections and appetites that have been polluted and engaged elsewhere. You know, I think this is why when we neglect public worship in particular, but it's also true of our neglect of private worship or family worship. To the degree that we neglect these things, we leave ourselves open. Because as worship suffers, our ability to praise God and to resist temptation will suffer as well. We need to turn from our self-indulgence 
and become, as it were, addicted to the worship and service and glory of God. And so if you find that you're presently living a thoroughly self-indulgent life, and to whatever degree you're living in self-indulgence, in whatever aspect of your life, ponder well what God has done for you in Christ and turn. Fall on your face and worship the one through whom the forgiveness of all of your sins is granted in Christ Jesus. And the one as well who promises by His gracious Spirit dwelling in you to put to death this seed of the self. God be merciful to me, the sinner. He is willing. Beloved, He is able. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how easy, especially in a series like this, to feel very much bowed down beneath the load of sin. But Lord, we pray that as we are bowed down under that weight, that we would look up. And that we would see the one who died. The one who purchased redemption. The one who suffered in our place. The one whose self-control brought him from the garden to the cross. His unquenchable thirst to do the will of his Father in heaven. O Lord, that we might have the very mind of Christ, that we might take every thought and affection and appetite and will and desire captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us. For in this area of a biblical, spirit-worked self-control, we find so many things in our lives that are lacking where we have sin, O Lord, where we need to be reined in, where we need to live for the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of our desires. But Lord, point us again and again to Jesus Christ, whose perfect self-control has been credited to my account. And though my account naturally contains no good thing, only rebellion and sin. You have taken from my account and laid all upon Christ. And you have taken from Christ's account full of perfection and credited me with it. Oh Lord, what a glorious gospel indeed. What great grace for unworthy sinners. Help us to walk by that grace. Help us to eye the cross and our precious Savior in our wrestlings with self-control. And do discipline and purify us, O Lord, a people zealous for good works, we pray in Jesus' name.